Welcome to another segment of BuddyCast. I'm here with my new buddy, Daniel Holzman. How's it going today? Hey, buddy. How's it going? Uh, glad to have you on the show. Thanks. I, I see your quizzes online all the time, and I'm like, I got to get this guy on a BuddyCast, you know? You ever, you ever play, though? I don't see you, uh, you put the answers in, or you just look at them? I think I've done it once. <laughs> I think I played it once. Uh, I think I came, cl- I came close. I got all the answers right. But then I think someone else got all the answers right too. So yeah, well, all the all the people who have the same score go into a drawing. So all oh, the nice. scores, and then I pick a winner every day. Nice, nice. I also understand you're a juggler. Is that correct? Yeah, that's what I've done for since about 1980. Wow, professional juggler for about you know 40 years or so. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. How did you come into juggling? Well, in 1974, a book came out called The Juggling Book by Carlo. And I saw it in my local bookstore, and I, I got it. And I taught myself to juggle when I was 14 or so. And juggling very quickly became my hobby, became the thing I liked to do the most. Uh, I would come home from school. I'd grab some oranges. I would juggle. And I started to meet other jugglers and to learn about juggling. And by the time I was 16, 17, I started getting a few small jobs. And then I graduated high school when I was 18 and went into the workforce and was cooking hamburgers and uh, working in supermarkets, all the bad teenage jobs. And uh, I started going to Renaissance fairs. And I saw jugglers who were there working, making money. And I thought, you know, looks good to me. And that's when I met another juggler named Barry Friedman, and we, we met up and we put an act together, and I worked with him for about 32 years or 34 years as part of, part of a duo called the Respini Brothers. Nice. That's going to be my next question, how you met Barry. Yeah, um, I was in, it was in Sherman Oaks, California. That's right. We grew up in a place called the San Fernando Valley. Both me and Barry grew up in the same area. And I was riding my bicycle, so I still was only about 17, 18 years old, uh, by a park. And I saw some guys juggling in the park. And it was him, and it was his partner at the time named Mike Boyer and one of their other friends. And they were all passing clubs. And, of course, it attracted my attention. And then I went and uh, hung out with them. But I really didn't meet Barry again until the 1980 IGA convention, which is the Juggler's annual get-together in Fargo, North Dakota. That's where we became pretty friendly. And I started hanging out with him and Mike. And I was doing a solo show. They were doing a duo show. And uh, he Barry got an opportunity to go to Chicago, to drive across country, to go to a Renaissance fair for no money, just for tips. And his partner, Mike, at the time, had a, had a girlfriend. And I think she was also his fiance at the time. Didn't want to go. So uh, Barry asked me if I wanted to go instead. And so that was our first job. And I thought it would just be for the, for that one job or for, you know, the summer. And of course it turned out to be, uh, you know, 32 years or 34 years. Nice. Nice. Is that how you created the Caspini brothers? Yeah. So we both already had some previous experience. I was a very big history buff about juggling. Like I, I, I like juggling, but I also like the people. I like the history. And on the way there, so we drove there together and we kind of put the show together in the car on the way over. Like we'd stop and we'd practice and we'd talk about ideas and stuff. And I, there was a book at the time called 2000 Years of Juggling that has a history book about juggling. And one of the jugglers they talked about was Eduardo Respini. 
uh, R-E-S-P-I-N-I. And I was also a big fan of Harry Houdini, who took his name from Robert Houdin, just added an I. And I thought, when we used to say that jugglers were raspy, like a hard trick was raspy. This is the 80s, of course. Oh, that dude's raspy, you know, that kind of stuff. So when I saw the name Raspini, it struck me as funny, but also kind of Italian sounding, like because we're going to the Renaissance Fair. So I was like, why don't we call ourselves the Raspini Brothers? And Brothers is kind of a typical, you know, Flying Karamazov Brothers circus name. Mm -hmm. And it was supposed to be just for the one festival, you know, just for the Renaissance, and uh, it stuck. So that's how the name stuck. Nice. Do you still keep your touch with Barry today? I still what? Keep, t keep in touch with Barry? Oh, yeah. Yeah, not as much, but we, I talk to him, you know, every once in a while. We don't have business together anymore, mm. but we're still friends. So, uh, yeah, yeah. We're on Facebook and talk on the phone sometimes. Yeah. We're, we left on good terms. There was nothing, you know. I uh, just, of course, Barry wanted to do other things. Mm. I would have continued. I would have at least kept it so that we could do an occasional show. But he also had started having some problems with his neck. Like his neck got really stiff. Mm. A lot of the tricks he was doing, like ping pong balls or head rolls, you know, we're both uh, approaching 60. And mm -hmm. so also just physically. And then they had another thing going. He got this uh, coaching program going, uh, Showbiz Blueprint. And uh, it's uh, really successful for him. So, you know, he found something else to do. Nice. Nice. I see we have a question from the audience. Oh, I didn't know there was an audience. <laughs> yep. What kind of items can you juggle? Like, say, fire, swords? And so well, yeah, in a show, you know, you'll do knives and torches. But I don't do that stuff for fun. Uh, for fun, I like, uh, you know, I like the devil sticks and the cigar boxes. I like hats and plates and sticks. And I like everything. The fire, the knives and, and fire are really just the showy part of it. They're not that much different than juggling clubs. It's just more audience appeal. Nice. Very nice. Now, we mentioned this uh, at the beginning of the show. One reason I reached out to you is because I saw your um, your online quizzes that you've come up during, it seems to be during COVID. Um, what gave you the inspiration for those? Yeah, I call them quipsels, kind of a combination of, uh, you know, quip puzzles. Because mm -hmm. they're, they're supposed to be funny and humorous. Because I like to do a lot of joke writing. And I took a class, it was called uh, Comedy Business School by this guy, Scott Dickers, who writes, who uh, used to own a, a business called The Onion, a satirical newspaper where they write funny news stories. And in this class, he was sort of talking about uh, creating your own niche, you know, having something unique that you can offer. You know, in the business, so you could have something unique. And as a comedy writer, you could write articles and jokes and, you know, whatever. And you're competing against thousands and thousands of people who have been doing it for years. So I thought, well, if I come up with these sort of funny quizzes, you know, maybe one day a newspaper or a magazine might be interested in having it as a feature. And it would be unique. And it's, it's fun. It's, I don't really have to make them all jokey. So it's mm -hmm. not like six or seven jokes a day. It's just kind of more like thinking of a clever topic and trying to come up with ways uh, to get people to play. Nice. How many, part how many people participate on average? Uh, the most is in the low 20s, and the least is in, you know, depending on how hard the, the quizzes are sometimes. Sometimes mm -hmm. they put them out and people are like, oh, that's too hard. And I only get like three or four players. But usually average is about a dozen or so. So it's not a huge thing. But it's also not hard for me to do, and there, there are people who really like them. Yeah. 
fun part of their day. So why not? Absolutely. Is there any like benefit to those quizzes or anything like that, as you said? Well, you know, to me, you always want to put things out that you think have potential. Yeah. Especially the things that don't cost you any money or just creative projects. Because you never know. I mean, sometimes uh, look at like uh, J.K. Rowling with Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. You got to you got to give yourself some lottery tickets in life. Uh, you know, don't buy actual lottery tickets. Mm-hmm. But if you create little creative projects, even if they don't seem to have any, you know, no one's asking for them, and they're not something that you think, oh, this is an automatic success. But let's say I do these things, and I do them for a while, and it kind of peters out and goes nowhere. Okay, but maybe mm-hmm. it gets some traction. Maybe it gets some momentum. Or someone sees it that I don't know and go, hey, I, I know this guy who knows this guy. So the more things you put out there that you think have a chance, I call them sort of like swing for the fences kind of things, you know? Yeah. Because if they work, if you want to fantasize, it could be a huge deal. The realities are usually more like, you know, small success here, small success there. But you got to keep trying. Always keep trying. Most definitely. That's the tuna buddy cast, you know, just keep trying even if, you have an audience of 500 people or three people, you know? Yeah, like right now I'm writing, I'm writing a book. I'm writing a young adult novel. I just finished uh, 70,000 words. It's really about, about 75,000 words, so I'm kind of coming to the end of the first draft. Same thing. You know, no one's asking me to write a book. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be any good. I don't know if I'm, you know, I think I could write, but I wouldn't call myself a great writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's fun to do, and who knows? Maybe it will be something that will... Give me some success, you know? Yeah, what's the book about, if you don't mind me asking? No, oh, I don't mind at all. It's about a, a young adult novel about a, a, an older juggler who meets the younger juggler then mentors him in the ways of the craft. Nice. Yeah, I think it's important to stick... Uh, like, I have a friend who sent me a book, and it was um, a detective novel. And I started to read, and I thought, you know, I've read thousands of detective novels, and I thought I've read a lot better detective novels than this. So I thought, why try to recreate something that I wouldn't be able to do well? So I wanted to write about jugglers and juggling, and it takes place at Pier 39, which is a place I worked for like three years. So I'm able to fill in the backstory with lots of uh, true facts that I think are interesting about the worlds of juggling and street performing. Very nice. I like it. Sounds interesting. You'll have to let me know when it comes out. Yeah, I will. You can tell your audience because... Because, you know, really, no one's ever read in a book where a juggler or a street performer is the main character. Yeah. So I thought for people who are in the business, uh, whether it's successful in the bigger world, there's probably two or 300 people who would really get a kick out of it. Absolutely. Uh, so if, even if it's that big and people read it and they're like, hey, I read it and I really enjoyed it. It gave me some pleasure. That's kind of what I'm about, just trying to put stuff out. Yeah. In the world. And hopefully millions of people like it. But if, if 100 people like it, like I also do a podcast uh, called Drop Everything. It's available on iTunes. We just did our 86th episode where mm-hmm. I interview jugglers. And so it's a small niche market. You know, I interview jugglers and mostly jugglers listen to it. But once again, if, if two or 300 people like it, you know, not everything's going to be uh, Joe Rogan, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Hey, everyone on BuddyCast, you know, no matter if you're a famous actor, juggler, or just the local piano teacher you're still a buddy exactly hey you're still you're still bringing pleasure to the world you're still in show business no matter what level you are where we all share that same bond so you know go for it exactly 
So speaking of like jugglers entertainment, you know, um, we have the pandemic going on. How do you see that impacting like the entertainment world, especially like juggling per se? Well, it's been terrible. I mean, you obviously see that we're also on the bottom of the rung of what's important. You know, when everything comes back, the live events are still going to be the last thing that people, you know, are going to look at that we need. Though it's not, it's not an essential, we're not essential workers, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. So um, I think no matter what happens, uh, it's going to change entertainment. Even if things change, it went back completely normal, it's going to change entertainment in some way. I think a lot of things are going to go more online. A lot of people, let's say they had six live events a year. Maybe they'll go to three live events, three online events. So I think people who are doing Zoom shows and, and trying to get online and be virtual, it'll benefit them because no matter what, I think they'll always be part of their ongoing career. Hmm. And maybe you're doing live shows, maybe you book a couple of Zoom shows every week. I don't think it'll go away. I don't think it'll ever completely go back to normal. No, that's really, that was my follow-up question. Where do you think it was, where do you think it's going? Like what do you, what do you see it resulting? Well, I think obviously there's a couple of different ways it could go. In a perfect scenario, uh, we get a vaccine this year. Um, everybody feels very safe to go back into big groups again. The problem is, as you realize, entertainment usually books, you know, three or four months ahead of time. So for next summer to be saved, people need to really start booking at the end of the year. So if, if it goes to the beginning of this next year and we're still not any, any better, well, then maybe next summer could be in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. And that would be really bad. So I think there are most performers can get through like one bad year. But after that, it's going to get kind of rough. And I think some people will drop out of the business. Uh, some people are just waiting for it to come back, which I think is a bit of a mistake. Because there's, all, there's other things to do now. There's other ways to be creative. There's other avenues you can explore. I think you really should get your show ready. I think a lot of people won't be practicing. They won't be doing new promotion. They're just going to be moping or whatever. But other people are going to use this time to practice, put new material together, get new photos, whatever it is. So when things do come back, they can hit the ground running. Like they're ready to go. I think those people will have an advantage over the people who are just poor me, poor me, sitting back, getting getting heavy, not practicing, you know, got the big... Yeah big uh, pandemic beard type of thing. So people have have really segued very well into the Zoom shows. Mm -hmm. I have a friend, uh, Bree Crabtree, a local family entertainer, seems to be doing a lot of Zoom shows. There's some magicians I know who are doing good Zoom corporate shows, making some good money. Other people are like, I'm just hanging out. (laughs) So. When you go the phone, you ring and say, hey, we can go back. Yeah. And it doesn't mean at the same time you can't be writing a book, you can't be working on new projects, you can't be working on new routines. It's just, it's, we just can't be doing shows right now. Exactly. Exactly. It's all about how you feel that time. It's all about maybe even practice, just practicing while you're still at home, you know? Perfect well, opportunity. There's lots of things to learn. I mean, there's lots of things to ways to improve. And like I said, project with, uh, with this book, I'm pretty much retired uh, or semi-retired. I still do I still do, do jobs, but not as much. So you have a lot of free time, and it's good to fill it with something like I say that has potential. Hmm. Speaking of your time, do you remember any funny stories that you love telling from entertaining? 
Well, we've certainly had some very unusual, interesting shows over the years. Uh, one that comes to mind was a pretty early one in our career. I think I was about 19 or 20, maybe early 20s at the most. Uh, Barry and I were working at the Renaissance here in Los Angeles. Um, I think it was out in Calabasas at the time. And uh, we're wearing our Renaissance outfits. And, you know, we make a, you know, a decent amount of money, maybe 800, 1,000 bucks uh, a weekend or something. Uh, you know, maybe a little bit more than that. And a woman comes up to us and she's very drunk and she says, oh, you must come to Europe to perform for my father. We're like, oh, okay, that sounds nice, drunk lady. Here's the number of my private secretary or she got our number or something. And sure enough, the next day her secretary calls. And it turns out her name was Nabilia Khashoggi. And it turned out her dad was Adnan Khashoggi, who at the time was the wealthiest man in the world, pretty much. He was an arms merchant and he had uh, yachts and, and villas in Spain and Greece and Africa and all over the world. And so they told us uh, he wants you to come to this party. It'll either be in Spain or Greece or Africa. And uh, we ended up going to Marbella, Spain, which is the Gold Coast of Spain. Like I say, we, we were just two young kids. We hadn't really done anything, hadn't been on TV or anything. And they put us up in a beautiful hotel, the Hotel Del Golf. We were there four or five days. And we finally performed for him and his family. There was like maybe eight of them and their own little private disco at about three in the morning. We did a show and then hung out in Europe for a couple of weeks and then came back. Nice. The only problem was we didn't know who he was. So we probably didn't ask for enough money. I think we asked, <laughs> I think we asked for like $1,500. We asked for like 15000 yeah. They doubled it. They gave us like $3,000. I think they felt sorry for us. And they, <laughs> they gave us $3,000 and we, we blew it all traveling around Europe. So that was fun. I, you know, we worked with lots of celebrities and uh, that, those were fun experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, fly around Canada with Howie Mandel in a Lear. Like after every show, he would take a jet to his next to the next city. And so, you know, I'd never been on a Learjet. And so flying around and he'd put on Pink Floyd or, you know, cool music. And he was a nice guy and we'd all hang out in the Learjet and it was, that was pretty cool. We didn't make much money. He wasn't a very uh, well-paying gig, mm -hmm. but to fly around in the Learjet was, was pretty cool. So that was cool. Nice. What other celebrities have you hung out with in your time? Uh, you? Robin Williams we toured with, uh, Billy Crystal we toured with. Uh, then we did a lot of opening acts, you know, one-off times in Vegas or Atlantic City. You know, guys like Tom Jones, or Paul Anka, Dean Martin, you know, some of the old school guys. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, a lot of the comics. We did a lot of the comics uh, in the 80s because they liked the fact that we weren't topical and we were funny without, you know, stepping on any of their toes material-wise. Mm -hmm. So we did like Gary Shandling and Dennis Miller, Dana Carvey, uh, Roseanne Barr we toured with. Oh, you know, tons of stars, tons of stars. Yeah. For about, for about a, maybe a nine or 10 year period. That was like in the 90s. Then that market totally disappeared. There really is no opening act market anymore. Mm. So I went from about 75% of our work to about 0% of our work. And it just shows you how things, uh, you know, things change. You, know, you have a market that's going very good for you. Next thing you know, it, it doesn't exist. Or you're pricing yourself out of it or whatever. Uh, you always have to be changing. You always have to be evolving in this business. Mm -hmm. Totally understandable. Let me ask you, what was it like working with Robin Williams? Uh, it was fun. Here, here's a story from that. Is like the so we were opening for Billy Crystal, and Billy they had the mm -hmm. same management, uh, David Steinberg. 
It was like Mora Bresnev, I forget the exact name, Jack Jack Rollins. You know, he's with the agency. So uh, Robin Williams and Billy Crystal were with the same agency. So we did Billy Crystal first. And then they always had trouble finding people to open for Robin Williams because his audiences were very enthusiastic. And at the time, he had Bobby McFerrin, who went on to become famous with uh, Don't Worry, Be Happy, that song. Mm -hmm. Don't worry, you know, be happy. But even he would have problems. This was before he was famous. And sometimes he would get, uh, they wouldn't boo him off the stage, but the people would start chanting, Robin, Robin. And he would have to leave the stage, you know, because... They were so hyped up to see Robin. This was pretty much uh, right after Mork and Mindy, and he started making movies. So he was a big star, big star at the time. So we get the gig, and it's about a 4,000-seater or a 6,000. It was a big college date, you know, an arena of some sort. And so his management comes to us and says, look, we want you to do 30 minutes because they want to take an intermission and sell drinks and whatever, you know, merchandise. But if you go out there and you can only give us like 10 minutes, you know, just do your best. You know, if they start chanting, don't think you have to do the whole time. Just give us what you can and, and then come off. And we went out there and we did really well. You know, at this time, we'd already been doing Renaissance fairs and these other opening acts. You know, tough gigs where you really have to work hard to get people's attention. And, and if they don't like you, they just walk away. So we had paid our dues and we had a very successful act. And we went out there and just did really, really well. His audience really, really liked us. And then, you know, that way we got to open for him over the next seven years, you know, here or there. But we became one of his go-to acts that he would use uh, when he went on tour. I like that story a lot. You know, he was hard to know because I felt he had two different personalities. Like Mm -hmm. one really on, like when you, you know, like the Robin everybody knows. Really manic, really funny, really the life of the party. And he was also very sober at the time. He, he was uh, not doing any kind of drugs or drinking, anything like that. Mm-hmm. But the other one was, uh, was a very kind of uh, sweet, withdrawn, introverted guy who you could tell that when he wasn't on, he was, you know, he wasn't that easy just to sit and talk to. He was reserved. So I just didn't see that, the, that, that place in the middle where he could just relax, you know? Yeah. This was years ago. I mean, I hadn't seen him in the last uh, 20 years or so. So, yeah. you know, his, the news of his death and everything uh, took me completely by surprise. And I, and I wouldn't say that we were, you know, friends in any way, but, you know, I certainly worked with him off and on quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I was appalled. I was, I was so shocked. I texted a friend that day and said, I think Robin Williams died. And she texted me back and said, my mom says the police stopped spreading rumors and all that. And I'm like, I wish it was a rumor, you know? Yeah, it was, it was kind of feeling like, wow, if this guy can't make it in life, who yeah. can, right? Same with like an Anthony Bourdain. You're like, look, this is what we're all going after, really, especially in this business, is mm-hmm. and fame and fortune and money and opportunities and creative projects. And So when you see these people who seem to have all of it and it's not enough for them, you think, wow, you know, if they can't make it in this life, you know, what chance do I have? So you can look at one way, a very negatively way, and you can also say, like, look, everything they had – didn't bring them happiness. Mm-hmm. Be happy with what you got. But exactly. then you start realizing he had other elements. He had, you know, this uh, thing was called Louis body dementia. And he was kind of facing a pretty grim future. He's on medications. So, you know, there were other factors than just, he was, you know, unhappy with his life. So, yeah, most definitely. So 
one thing that I think people do need in life to make it, like you mentioned, you know, there are some people who have the world and there are some people who just have, you know, maybe it's like what you and me have, like where we just have, you know, like we have family, we have our friends, we have this, and that's perfectly fine with us, you know? One thing I think people need in this world is a buddy. So in your own words, how important is it for someone to be a buddy, especially nowadays? Well, I think one of the best things about this this business is, you know, what people call the hang, you know, hanging out, being with your friends at a gig. You know, if you're at a gig and you're a festival or one of the best parts of gigs for jugglers, I think, is like these performing festivals. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times you're doing a corporate or something, it's just you. If you're if you're a solo, it's just you by yourself. If it's just you and your partner, you know, so you fly to Florida or you fly to Orlando, you know, you fly to San Diego or wherever you go. You know, you're there. Maybe you have a friend in town or anything. But a lot of times you're just by yourself. You know, you're not seeing anybody, and it could be lonely. But the times you're able to be with your your friends who are in the same business, you know, they're also entertainers who share your interests, who, who share your experiences. And you're in some place, you know, like I've had great jobs in China or South Korea or, uh, you know, Middle East. So you're in these really interesting, fun, exotic places. But what makes them great is that you're with people hanging out. You know, you're with friends. And so if you were just there by yourself, it's a much different experience than, you, than with your friends. So when you're in this business, it's important to, I think, uh, be a good person in the business. You could be successful and a total dick, uh, and then people, you know, they don't like you. They don't. It's, it's you have friends because you're successful and famous. And I think every successful and famous person can have friends if they want, because uh, it's 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 a very uh, it's very alluring to be around people who are famous. Mm-hmm. That's why a lot of them can end up really in bad shape because they can treat people badly. They can do whatever they want and people still kiss their ass and want to be with them because that allure of celebrity is so is so appealing to people. But the ones who are the best, I think, I think celebrity kind of amplifies who you are. Like if you're a good person and you become famous, you can become you can do more with that goodness. If you're sort of a bad person and become have opportunities, uh, Trump comes to mind, you know, mm. you become more of what this terrible person you are because people let you get away with stuff. Like one of the nicest people I've met, like Dana Carvey and Gary Shandling, I thought were two of the nicest celebrities I'd ever met. Cause they're just, and they like to use their celebrity. Same with Robin Williams. Same with like a Bill Murray. I think, I think they'd like to use their celebrity to make other people happy. Cause they mm-hmm. know when someone meets them just simply by meeting them, they're making somebody happy. And for a lot of people, the desire to make other people happy is what makes us feel good. And that's a real friend is someone who wants to make you feel happy. Most definitely. That was a beautiful answer. Thanks. Now, I always ask these next two questions on to anyone who comes on my show. The first one is for all of our guests, as I call them buddies out there, if you could have them donate to one charity of your choice, what would it be and why? Oh yeah. I saw that on your list. I really didn't put too much thought into that. Good question. You know, I'm not a big I'm more of a personal charity thing, meaning that, mm-hmm. you know, when I see people I can help in my life or people who I meet, because I'm always leery about some charities, you know, meaning how much money actually goes to help and things like that. I'm also not a big tither. I know some people who belong to a church believe you should give, you know, 10% of your income 
to to the church. Obviously, I think uh, you know anything that involves uh, children who are in difficulty, you know, who don't have enough to eat, the elderly. I think people who are who are in situations who need help. I mean, you choose what it is, whether they're they've been injured in the war or they've been you know hit by disease. Any way you can help. I mean, I think that's a personal. Mm-hmm. A personal decision. I don't really have any charity who I think, oh, this one's, you know, I know this one to be legit. I know this one to be up and up. I just try to help, you know, when I can. So I think the idea of charity is is great. You know, get involved with something that brings, you know, satisfaction to you personally. And uh, I certainly think, uh, you know, I'm not a political guy, but I see a really bad situation. So donating to the Biden campaign. I think is appropriate right now. I think we're at a kind of a crossroads between uh, two sides of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make judgments, uh, but I think one side um, makes sense. And to me, one side doesn't. So I support to me the side that seems to be making sense. Mm-hmm. All righty. And now it's time for what I call the ultimate buddy cast buddy question. You ready? Okay. Sure. What is your advice for anyone who wants to be a juggler? Well, I think, uh, like I was talking about the books, is uh, do something unique because, you know, if you're just a comedy juggler, I'm a comedy juggler, and you go on a website, let's say for cruise ship acts, you want to become a, you want to be on a cruise ship, and most cruise ships are booked through agencies, like you don't go to the ship lines directly; they deal with an entertainment agency who supplies their entertainers. And if you go on one of the uh, their websites and you see there's a list of 30 other jugglers who they're already using, and you go, well, I'm a juggler too. Well, it's going to be hard for you to stand out. So the people who, you know, who have a unique voice, who are, who are an original, uh, will, do, will be, do better. And, of course, it helps if you have certain uh, advantages, right? If, you, if your looks, your, your connections... You have to exploit whatever are your strengths. So if you're funny, you're probably better off being a comedy juggler. If you're, if you have a certain look and a certain, you want to be a technical juggler, you try to try to play to your strengths. I think is a good, a good piece of advice. See what's unique about you, what your strengths are. Once again, like with this book, you know, I wanted to write a book where the main character was a juggler because I had never seen that done before. So this can be the best book about a juggler ever written right but if i write another book about a a, a boy wizard it better be better than harry potter mm-hmm. so start with at least with a place where people are comparing you on your own merits don't start as something else that oh i already have a unicycle juggler or we already have a i've already seen someone do that routine like with magic if you start with uh you know the banana banana bandana routine oh it's a, it's a funny routine or whatever but if you're an agent and you've seen you know 50 guys do it, you're already thinking, why hire this guy? I got another guy who could do that. And you always want him to think, I want to hire this guy. You want to have that unique, I, I want Adam Sandler, I want Jim Carrey, you know, I want uh, Penn and Teller, whoever. If they go, I want a juggler, well, then you're already kind of screwed because you know, then you're competing with thousands of people. Great advice. Be unique. Be yourself. Find what makes you. Here's another example of, of what I'm talking about is that I also invented a toy. And I got a toy that was sold in Walmart. Here's my 
here's the original version. There it is. Okay, here we go. There it is. <laughs> up, up. The ring dama. That's my What's that? Huh? What is it? It's a uh, ring. You wear like a ring, and you flip the ball up, and you try to catch it in the cup. Ah. And then a company bought it from me called Zing Toys. They bought the rights to the electronic version, and they made the Zing Dama. Hmm. So this one lights up. Nice. Lights up. So once again, you know, I wanted to invent a toy. And so I thought, you know, I invented another toy. This was the first one I invented. This one's called uh, the Volcano Ball. See, it's a ball. It's a tube. And you drop the balls through, and then you can sort of stop them. It's hard to see a little bit. See how, the, how you stop the ball going through? And so it's a juggling prop. You do all kinds of juggling tricks. But, uh, you know, it's trial and error. Like, I learned that that was too big, and people didn't know what it was. And, and so sometimes you do something. And it doesn't quite work, but then you realize, why didn't it work? So a lot of people, they put an act together, they have an idea, but then they don't, they're not willing to modify it. They're not willing to finesse it, to, to, to change it in a way that they'll be successful. Because they have an idea in their mind of what they want it to be, and it's like a fantasy. And it becomes very attractive to them, but they won't do anything to, to get into real life, because real life is not as good as the fantasy. So a lot of people want to be entertainers and they have an idea of what that means. And it's kind of a rosy picture, but you know how it is. If you're doing shows, you gotta, you gotta deal with reality and you have to uh, take what reality and, you know, like I say, so this, the first one wasn't successful. You think, well, how can I make it differently? But also how can I create something that's never been done before? Like this, this didn't exist before until mm -hmm. I invented it. So what can you bring into the world that doesn't exist? What can you create? Because that's, as a, as a creative person, it's your job to be creative. It's not just doing shows. Your job is to create and then to show people your creations. Beautiful. I like it. I love that advice perfectly. All right. Well, thank you so much for being a buddy here on BuddyCast. Sure. You're my new buddy, Nick. Absolutely. You're my new buddy. Cool. So, I hope to, you know, who knows, maybe we might run into each other one day, you know? Where, where, where are you located? I'm in Pennsylvania. So. Oh, yeah, I'm on the West Coast, you're on the East Coast. Yeah, I hope so. Like, are you, you're a performer too? Yeah, I've done a little, you know, I do comedy every now and then, and uh, I used to be a professional clown, so. Nice. And what, yeah. other, what other guests you had on your show? Oh, tons of them, actors, comedians. Fun. Um, just anyone really, you know, just it all depends on what makes you unique. What makes you stand out from the rest of the world? And what can you, like you said, what can you offer to the world? Cool. And this is something you're offering. And how many, how many of these shows you done so far? I think we're in the fifties. Nice. Nice. Mm -hmm. Well, I wish you luck with it. Like this is the kind of, this is what I'm talking about. Thank you. These are the kind of things you got to put out in the world. Like you, yeah. do, you do these, like when I do my podcast or you do a blog or whatever it is. Yeah. You know, you have to start somewhere. Maybe you have 50 viewers, 100 viewers. Mm -hmm. But the uh, same thing, you know, if you it's hard nowadays because if you want to create a vlog or a podcast, it's hard to have a unique approach. So here you are making new friends, and every, every one of your people on your, your show is your buddy. Mm -hmm. I, wish, I wish you well with it. Thank you very much, and I wish you well with your podcast as well. 
Thanks. Yeah, drop everything available on uh, on iTunes. And of course, I have a couple of books on Amazon.com. I also have a book of. Uh, have, let me hold one up here. Do I have one? Oh, oh. oh I don't have. I don't have one available. Oh well. Oh. Uh, well, it's okay. It's a book of tips. Uh, tips uh, for for variety performers. You also just look up Daniel Holzman on Amazon.com. It's a thousand and one tips for perfecting, performing, and uh, doing your act. So for jugglers, magicians, anybody in the variety field, uh, check out my book of tips. Beautiful. I'll definitely have to look that up. Cool. All righty. For all my buddies out there, this was my new buddy, Daniel Holzman. Thank you again so much for being here on BuddyCast. It was a pleasure to have you. Well, thanks for having me, Nick. Thanks. Most definitely. And for all my buddies out there, like I end every single show, go be someone's buddy today. We'll right. catch you next time here on BuddyCast.